0: Welcome to episode number two, numero dos, of the Truth Is Allowed podcast. My guest is a very special friend and mentor, Mike D'Agostino. Guys, this episode was amazing. Welcome to the Truth Is Allowed podcast, the show where great leaders from all sectors share with us the truth about their happiness and success. Here you will learn how to shape your mindset and perspective to win in business, relationships, and life. Get ready to hear what you need to hear because the Truth Is Allowed podcast is about to begin. Mike D'Agostino is a Canadian ex-pro soccer player, entrepreneur and professional soccer coach. He coaches for the Vancouver Whitecaps U23 team and serves as the technical director for North Vancouver Football Club, one of the biggest youth soccer clubs in Vancouver. He was also a co-founder of Urban Soccer Center and Vancouver Futsal Association, two organizations known for pioneering soccer technology and organized futsal in British Columbia. Mike opened up about the life lessons learned in his soccer career, how he excels while working over a hundred hours a week and the importance of staying out of your comfort zone. Enjoy the show. Mike D'Agostino, welcome to the show, my friend. Come andiamo, tutto bene? Si, 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 tutto posto. I want to start talking about your soccer career. Okay, so you, you played for the Canadian national team. You had a few tryouts in Italy, in England as well. You signed for Blackpool. Uh, a a team in England as well. I wanna ask you, how was your experience as honestly a very young player? Because I think people don't realize how young soccer players are um, when they're going in this journey around the world, only being 15, 16, 17, 20 years old. So how was your experience as a soccer player going from Canada straight to Europe to tryouts in a very, very competitive atmosphere?
1: yeah
2: so uh, you know I'll start back when I was playing uh, kind of locally here in in the Vancouver area. Um, you know for me it was it was uh, the goal was always to be professional and I had uh, a few opportunities when I was younger um, in grade eleven and grade twelve, I had opportunities to go sign with teams in in Italy with their called the Primavera team, which is like their reserve team. Um, I had opportunities to be um, you know uh, player that left high school to go and play uh, in Europe at an early age. But, it, it, you know, what I what I really decided to do in the end was to take a scholarship at the University of Kentucky. Um, okay. And that was a really tough decision for me. I was really leaning more towards taking that kind of, quote unquote, semi-professional route um, at an early age. I, I actually skipped a year in, in elementary school. So by the time I was graduating mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: high school, I was, was just, just turned 17. So oh, okay.
1: you know, the opportunity
2: for me to go and play in Europe was was something that I was trying to pursue. But I also understood that you know, at my age, it might have been good to get a couple of years of, of of university experience under my belt. Um, it was really it really came down to the wire. Um, I, mm-hmm. I basically had had everything in my mind set up to say, okay, I'm going to go now and, and, and go to Southern Italy, which is where the two um, clubs had offered mm-hmm. me contracts. I had I had an opportunity at a club in, in London as well uh, with mm-hmm. their with their U. Uh, U19 team um mm-hmm. long story short decided uh to go pursue the University of Kentucky okay. uh and then during that time um I had an opportunity to play with the U20 national team uh playing mm-hmm. a couple years up okay. um I ended up missing out on that U20 World Cup which was in Holland uh which was fine um I think in the end Messi and Argentina won that one I can't remember but uh, mm-hmm. I stayed in university for another two seasons, and then I pursued um, the U-20 World Cup that was in Canada in 2007. I was part of that squad, although I wasn't um, a huge contributing member. We didn't do so well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We lost all three games, but we did have the chance to play against uh, Chile, which Mm -hmm. with Vidal, Sanchez, and and those types of guys. Um, Mm -hmm. They definitely taught us a few lessons, Um, Mm -hmm. but it was a good experience. And and after that, uh, I had opportunities in England. Uh, I went to Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Signed for them. They were in the championship at the time, which uh, for me was a, is a really big league. One of the top probably 10 leagues in the world. But yeah. I wasn't ready for that. So I got sent on loan um, to the third division, a couple different clubs there and, and bounced around. Did well, um, you know, decided after three years there that I was going to come back and, and pursue Italy and pursue Germany and kind of bounced around a little bit. Had some opportunities in Scandinavia, had some opportunities in MLS and USL teams. Um, never really got the chance to play for the full national team only played Mm up to the U23 level but for me uh I ended pretty early I ended playing Mm -hmm. professionally at around 26 27 um Mm -hmm. but it it was kind of um I I could see the writing on the wall like I was I could have kept playing no no doubt a lot of my friends that were at the same level as me were playing and getting contracts here and there and who knows what would have happened what would have happened if I, I stuck it out but I, I knew that I was never going to be a Premier League player, a Serie A player, or playing in La Liga. Okay. So for me, the the opportunity to come back home and start coaching and, and building kind of entrepreneurial stuff and and getting my roots back uh, in the soccer world from a non-playing perspective was, was kind of the vision that I saw. It's a longer term vision, um, you know, but for me, the the... The, the quote that you said or the the what you've mentioned about being young is is sometimes we forget that. And some players nowadays are 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 being fought over at 15, 16, 17 year olds, 17 years old, sometimes younger. And we forget that they fully they haven't fully matured. They fully haven't understood what they want in their life. And um, it's up to good leadership and good coaches to mm-hmm. to to drive them in the right direction. Um, and and I see it a lot now with the with the kids that I'm coaching or the men that I'm coaching, depending on what you want to call them, um, you know, uh, at, at the Vancouver Whitecaps.
0: 100. percent. And I can tell you for sure that you're a great leader and a great coach as well. We'll get into that topic shortly. But um, to me, the age aspect of it, which you are describing of players, right? Like when you go into a tryout anywhere in the world nowadays, I feel in soccer, it's highly highly competitive environment in which in some cases, you're competing against players that have no other choice other than succeeding in that world. Otherwise, maybe their family won't make it. Or maybe their their other alternative is crime. You would see that a lot in Venezuela. And being very young and being thrown into these circumstances, at least in my own case, I think it taught me a lot of
2: lessons. What were the biggest lessons you learned in your, in your soccer career? I never experienced desperation. Um, and I think that that's sometimes something that Uh, we don't want to put on our athletes because Mm -hmm. you know they have a not that everybody has a comfortable life but you know we live in a country in a city that you know we're we're very lucky to be in and Mm -hmm. sometimes desperation is what fuels motivation and we don't necessarily have that in our environment and and Mm -hmm. You know, the game's becoming more professionalized now that mm-hmm. even in countries that, that aren't necessarily first world countries, even second or third world countries, there are outlets for those players to, to be uh, identified early and move up those ranks and, and maybe feel a bit more comfortable because they are consi- considered assets um, by clubs mm-hmm. or, or by academies or whatever they are. For me, in terms of going back to your question, lessons learned, um, camaraderie, that's a big one. Um, you know, trusting your teammates, trusting your coaches, trusting the process, um, you know learning to work together, leadership, teamwork, you know those are all kind of buzzwords and, and easy ones for anybody to say, but I think that they're really applicable. And you look at um, I, I always like I play golf and I like to play tennis. Mm-hmm. I look at the the difference in what they would go through as young athletes compared to what what soccer players would go through. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't imagine, you know, hitting a ball against a wall for hours straight or working on my putting for hours straight individually by myself with a coach or whatever that is. And I think the one thing you learn about life and and, and just in general, when you're playing a sport like soccer, whether it's hockey or football or anything, that's a team sport, is that you can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have to trust the people around you and you have to trust that they trust you also. So for me, that would be the biggest uh, thing that I take out of soccer, sports, and and just being in team environments in general. Of course, of course.
0: Now, Mike, in my case, I remember when I was 15, I had the chance to go and do a preseason with a first division team back in Venezuela. And to me, that was a very fast process. Like I'm telling you, I was playing in the U-17 of that team. It was called Petare Football Club. I was 14, and I was playing with you 17 um, And I was the typical case of this very young player, similar to you, very talented, that was playing two, three years up. And then everybody was like, oh, this guy, what a player, what a player. I turned 15. They called me for, for the first team right away. And you'll be surprised. The first thing I felt was fear. I said, oh my god, what did I get myself into? Like This is serious. I, I was aware of my talent. I was excited at the same time, but the first emotion I felt was fear. And as the process went by, obviously I started enjoying it. I started learning massively from professionals. Um, and I remember my biggest challenge at that age was anxiety. And I know that, that now. Back then, I would think I just missed my family every time we would travel. Or I thought at some point, oh, maybe this is not what I like. But internally, what I was feeling was just anxiety. And that's how it was reflecting in my life. What do you think, did you ever suffer on anxiety at all or, or missing your family every time you traveled? Did you ever, and these are very personal questions, but did you ever feel the other side of the coin there?
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, first going on trial and you walk in the change room and, and the kit man's giving you your kit and you got your boots and your backpack. Um, sometimes in countries that you don't speak the language very well, when you walk into that change room and, and you know, every single one of those players, whether they're 15 or whether they're 20, they're looking at you like you are there to take my job. And that gives you a sense of, I don't want to say fear because I don't think that's it's necessarily it. Cause sometimes that can fuel you even more mm-hmm. to say, you know what, I am going to take your job or I'm going to do my best to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it, it puts you in a, in a, in a bit of a fighter fight or flight scenario and I think some people love it some people crumble in it and um, Mm -hmm. I I believe my career um, it could have been a bit it could have been a bit better but I was never going to be a superstar um, player but I think the main thing that I learned about um, walking into a change room like that is whenever there was a a situation where people uh, didn't want to embrace you there was almost always one or two that would go out of their way to make you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably more so as you get older, because the kids are the the players and the men, they realize that. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that I I learned a lot from, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, um, it's very easy to walk into a change room or sorry, to be in a change room and see a trialist walk in and kind of look at them and and poke at your, your teammate, your buddy beside you and say, okay, I wonder what this guy's all about. It's more difficult to go up to that person and, and try and engage a conversation, and try and embrace them, and try and make them feel welcome. You know whether they're going to be part of that group or that organization in the long term. I think that's a really valuable um, human skill, mm-hmm. and that's that's the same whether you're uh, in and part of a coaching staff or you're, you know, part of any organization. It, it, it's important that people embrace each other them feel comfortable because i think mm-hmm. with collaboration and with that synergy that it creates mm-hmm. everybody comes better and i think i always try to put myself in the shoes of that that one player that one person or that one staff member that might not necessarily know everybody or know
1: mm-hmm.
2: anyone at, at that point um, and you would know that better than i would you know coming from a different country with a different language and trying to land here and Find a f- group of friends and find a group of, of of people that you are similar to, that you want to work with, that you want to work around, that you want to collaborate with. That's not easy starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the connections that you make in life are probably the biggest assets that you have. Mm-hmm. Like to be able to pick up the phone right now and say, I'm going to call a person here, 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 Italy, England, Spain, US. Vancouver, Venezuela, wherever, and say, I have a meaningful connection there is important. Um, mm-hmm. And some people miss that because um, they might be a little bit scared of what that relationship you know, will take in terms of effort, energy, and, and sometimes mental space. Of
0: course, 100%. I, I agree with you. And for example, when you mentioned the people that you met along the way in your soccer career, your brother-in-law, Alex, you met him in your soccer career. And nowadays, is not only your brother-in-law; he's your best friend.
2: It's interesting because he actually, um, at the time, was uh, a non-local player. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, the Okanagan, which I know you know what the Okanagan is, but some people that might you know listen to this might not know. It's it's four hours from Vancouver, and it's an isolated place. Alex was living in the Okanagan at the time, and I was one of the big shots, uh, along with a few other people in the Vancouver area. You know, in that provincial team, that national pool and I remember Alex coming in and we're looking at this guy going you know who is he like but he's a guy you know not to get on onto him too much but he's a guy that is um he's not afraid of of well I don't say he's not afraid of anything but he's he's very much open just to put himself out there and and, mm-hmm. and open up and be a be a, a leader whether nobody knows him or not and so mm-hmm. I remember him walking in and he looked about 5 years older than than I did at the time and his voice was like a, a you know a 25 year old and and he came in and he was a good player and i think that seeing him being able to be a good player started that relationship with us and you know i was his roommate in the national team provincial team and and um we played with him in in germany together and you know 20 years later now you look at it and we've started businesses and you know he's my brother-in-law and all these types of things so mm-hmm yeah it's funny how you mentioned those connections how they can for sure sometimes come from nothing
0: of course of course one of the things that I find incredible about sports soccer in in specific is that every day you get another chance to reinvent yourself so if you compare sports I don't want to go too far but let's just say soccer with any other job or even education as well You're going day by day, sometimes hour by hour with new challenges. A training session is a challenge. A game is a challenge. A concentration is a challenge. A 1v1 is a challenge. An exercise is a challenge. Everything is a challenge that you're literally constantly overcoming. How did you deal with failure? And when I mean failure, I mean with this context, failure being a bad pass, a bad game, maybe not making it into a team. Again, being very very young and still figuring things out in your life how did you deal
2: with that i think if you're looking at individual moments in games or mm-hmm. or tournaments i think in an early age i wasn't very good at, that, at dealing with that failure um i remember lashing out at referees i remember um big timing it at times you know if someone you know you know playing in the local market um it wasn't that challenging. So, you know, sometimes I felt, okay, I'm going to go and just be a show off here and and go by three or four people and score. If our team got scored on. And I remember times where, you know, later in my career, we'd have a bad game or I'd have a bad game, you know, and, and you become very emotional, you know, the sports context, people look at it as this glamorous thing, but, but, you know, you go watch some of the documentaries that you have access to, To nowadays it's like a roller coaster um and as a player i think you deal with failure um everyone deals with failure differently but it's the ones that 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 actually have to go through the process of building breaking building breaking up and down up and down are the ones that end up becoming more successful in in the end and if you don't have failure early Mm -hmm. i think that's a bad thing because i think that that you're 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 not going to be able to know how to deal with that failure when it comes. And it doesn't matter if you're the best soccer player in the world or the, the biggest CEO in the world, there's going to be failures. Uh, individual moments, individual games, longer-term scenarios, uh, dealing with the failures um, is really important. I, I don't have a specific way to say, okay, this is how I deal with it. I think mm-hmm. you have to reflect and you have to look back and you have to decide what went wrong and how you can fix it. But even, as you know, you're talking to some of our players from eight years old all the way up, mm-hmm. you know, failure is a good thing, and it's it's how you take that failure, how coachable you can be, because you know the coach is going to know what you've done, and and if you take that in, you're going to be better. If you don't take it and you lash out, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to affect your progression as a player, as a person in general. One hundred percent.
0: It's interesting what you're mentioning. Um, there's so many, and I'm sure you have plenty as well. And I actually want you to share as well, one example of a failure of yours and, and what your process was. And I'll give you some time. I'll tell my story first. Um, I don't remember how old I was, but we had a trip to Argentina, a one-month trip. I was playing with a local club in Caracas, and our coach was Argentinian, Antonio Gomez. We called him El Lobo, which means the wolf. He was this massive Argentinian guy, okay, blue eyes, and he was brown, almost like my color skin, blue, blue eyes. So that's why we called him the Wolf, El lobo. So we went to Argentina. It was two teams that we traveled. Uh, one team was U-20. And then the other team, I think, was U-15. And I was like 12 or 13. So I was going half because of the trip and half. Oh, yeah, I'll play here and then if they give me some minutes. So I remember this specific game, Mike. Um, it was a friendly game against, I believe it was... Uh, Argentino Juniors, which is a historical team in Argentina, historical. It's one of the best uh, clubs in terms of making players. Maradona came from there, Cambiaso came from there, Peckerman, Sorin, I think. All Argentinian legends. And we go there, we say, it's a friendly game, nothing to be worried about. Let's just have some fun, friendly game. My friend, once the game started, these kids wanted to kill us. And I'm talking in a competitive way. They were playing as if it was the final of the Champions League, the game of their lives. When you put that into context, we're talking about kids that are in a 20-player team out of thousands that want to be there. So literally any second that they're on the soccer field, for them, is life or death. And I remember this, this scenario in which the coach called me low. He says, hey, we Sam, come here, come here. And I was like, oh, man, I was not expecting I was going to play. He says, go, go, go." someone got injured, go, left back. He threw me literally, he pushed me into the field. I'm like, okay, man, here I am. First ball, long ball, the other team uh, blasts the ball to my area. I run it, I protect the ball till the end. And then the ball goes out, um, goal kick for us. But then as the ball goes out, and again, this is like the mindset over there. The striker goes and he kicks the ball against the wall that was out of the field. The ball hits the edge, bounces, hits me on the face, okay? Super hard, man. We're talking about like minus four degrees. Ball hits me on the nose. Oh, my God. I start bleeding. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. My face is hurting. So I give the ball to the goalie, kind of like pretending I'm fine. Then as I see that I'm bleeding, I start walking out. I'm like, no, no, no. Lower, low, stop, stop, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm bleeding. This is literally a minute in after I enter. He grabs me. He comes, wow, wow, what's going on? Come here. He sees that I'm bleeding a little bit. I was not bleeding out, just a little bit. He grabs a t shirt that was over there in the bench, washes my face. He's like, You're fine. And then he, I remember this moment, Mike, like if it was yesterday. He turns me around. He says, Dale, which means let's go. And he pushed me into the field. I remember this man, and my blood like, starts flowing faster. He said, Dale, go. No argument. As soon as I entered the field, Mike, the next 45 minutes were the best 45 minutes of that trip for me. Every ball I got, rounded pass, tackled the guys. It was the game of my life. And then on the side, hello, every time I had the ball, encouraging me. Dale, bien, vamos. And years later, when I would talk to him, he would say, that moment, in that specific moment is when you got your soccer ID. That's when you became a player. So before you tell me your story now, the reason why I'm saying this is because I was literally at the brink of failure. In my mind, that was a failure. My nose was bleeding, I'm out. And it could have gone that way pretty easily. And I probably wouldn't have that amazing story right now, but it took literally five seconds for him and me to change the outcome up to the point that I think it made me who I am today, partly. So I think it's amazing what you're saying about failure and suffering because you can use it to your advantage. Tell me your story. I want to hear it.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, listen, first, before, before I say anything about my story, I think that's a uh, being a coach and a leader, that's a really powerful um, scenario and situation that you were in. And, and, I, and I think the confidence and the way that that el lobo approached it was a, was as you're talking about it now as a 20, 24 year old or, or however old you are that's a huge impactful moment in your career and and everything i think about now is in the coaching context or in the leadership context and that's um it's impressive what he did whether he was cognizant of it whether he was aware of exactly what type of um power he held over you and influence he had over you in your next 45 minutes, your next 10 years, your next 60 years, uh, you know, I think that's, a, it's a powerful one to show the, the, that, that failure, it, it kind of sometimes depends on how you, how you look at things. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find an exact moment, but I do remember a lot of instances coming from being a Canadian in, you know, this nice bubble world that we live in and being chucked into some of the games in the the English third tier, where you had fans right up against you, um, packed, you know, not 50,000, but, you know, you'd have sometimes up to 15, 20, 25,000, you know, at the time I was playing in the third division, you had Leeds United, Leicester City, Southampton, um, teams Oof. like that that were you know somehow in the third division during during that time um so sometimes you get that 30,000 40,000 but I just remember at a home game in Cheltenham town where probably 10,000 people there but right up against you you know how it is those Oof. English stadiums you where know, right people there. are you know mostly drunk and <laughs> I remember passing a ball as being a right winger trying to pass a ball back inside and completely giving it away and and they They counterattacked and they almost they almost scored. And I was really happy that they didn't, obviously. But I just remember, you know, trying to go back and and track the ball and then turning back and jogging up after it was a goal kick and the abuse that I was getting from some of the fans, you know, the local fans, the the Cheltenham town fans. And it was like that quickly things can change. And then I remember
0: And hold on, but how old were you then?
2: I think I was about 20, maybe 19. Imagine. Um, yeah, and, and young, right? Maybe 20,
1: 20 years Very young. old. Uh, Very 2000, within 20.
2: Very young.
0: Like, imagine on social media if someone insults you for whatever reason and, you, and it affects you. Imagine in that context, no?
2: For sure. But it, to, to, to kind of give you the same type of story that you had, 10 minutes later, I remember getting the ball, faking the cross going past the guy going to the byline crossing a back post and our our striker s- scores the header and the fans are like singing oh canada on the Whoa. side and it was like 5 minutes later they're telling me to go you know whatever and 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 after that they're now singing like oh canada or they're they're <laughs> giving me a cheer or whatever it is and so it's just you know that's a that's a you know third division england okay yeah. This Right. Think about what those players at Boca Juniors, Real Madrid, Manchester United, uh, you know, Juventus, whatever. Imagine the, the the pressure that they're under every single day. And mm-hmm. and you bring in social media. Social media in two thousand seven was almost non-existent. I remember I was I was at university in two thousand four, the very first year when Facebook started. And to get yeah. into Facebook, you had to have a university email address it was like it wasn't open it was only a university thing it was in that stage it was literally that first first year or year year and a half and um now you look at social media everyone's got everyone has their own opinion you know (laughs) i'm coaching players to deal with that now but at the end of the day i don't necessarily know what it's like to have to have gone through it because social media has changed the world Mm -hmm. and abuse in the moment is really powerful but it can also be just if not more powerful when you see people um, you know saying negative things about you on social media and you know yesterday Juventus lost 3-0 to Fiorentina and I'm following you know a lot of players and I look at Leonardo Bonucci's Instagram account and it's like three or four sentences of I'm sorry sorry to the fans sorry for the loss." When you're at that high level you've won seven scudetto in a row and you're a world champion or a champions league runner-up or every little thing fans can turn on you in in mm-hmm. one moment mm-hmm. um and that's it's tough for a, a an adult at 40 to 30 to deal with but imagine being an 18 19 20 year old
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's i think the psychological effect could be massive if, if it's not handled Right. And I don't want to by any means suggest that this is the same case, but I think it can have a similar effect, which is the role of parents throughout their kids' journey. And we're talking about kids since they're like three, four year olds that they start soccer, playing soccer up, up until adults. Obviously, you don't see parents, um, hopefully, you don't see parents insulting their kids at all. But I think that a parent being overly strict or unsupportive to their child could have similar effects to the kid as an adult maybe getting insulted by a fan. I'm not sure. But I think, you know, for all the parents listening that have a kid in in, in soccer, you know, your role is even more important during, before, and after the game as being always supportive, whatever the outcome is, I feel. For, for their child. What's your opinion on that, Mike?
2: Yeah, that's that's kind of the everyday for me, uh, whether it's coaching a, a, an 18-year-old or whether it's coaching an 8-year-old. Parents play a huge part in not only the success or perceived success of their son or daughter, but almost more importantly, their their happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it all the time. I know you see it too. I see it all the time where parents are overly critical of their son or daughter. Yeah. I, I see coaches step down from coaching sometimes because they're frustrated with how their son or daughter are doing. Some actually have the foresight to be able to say, it's not right for me to coach my kid because I can't control myself. And I don't want that kid to be mm-hmm. in a scenario where they're being constantly you know, under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really, really, really very important for, for parents to understand, first of all, that these kids are extremely. Especially at young ages, extremely, um, what's the word? They can be so easily pushed in one way or the other. Yeah. Um, they're like moldable clay. They're vulnerable. They're they're just they're 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 there to to be sculpted, and you got to make sure that you're 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 giving them the right info. And I always say to parents that ask me, "Well, how can I make my son a better player, or what do I need to work on?" or you know, that's the, the main question. You know I probably get that mm-hmm. question
1: yeah.
2: 10 times a month. What can you work on? And, and it's, it depends on who they are. Almost always at the younger age groups, you can work on everything. Yeah. But the most important thing that the parent can do is support them mm-hmm. and allow them to be the motivation for their every day. I see a lot of parents trying to fuel their son or daughter way more than they should um you know sometimes and and we'll i'll use the 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 kind of the analogy of you see some kids showing up to training like they're going into a coal mine and Mm -hmm. it's like okay here we go again got my lunch bucket going to work it's like no like they should be coming excited they should be coming ready and you know sometimes i'm having conversations with parents about their players development and they're like oh well he's got uh training on monday then we're doing private on tuesday then we're doing uh, two sessions on Wednesday, they were doing three on Friday, and you're like, anymore. "Okay, well, yeah." And the law of diminishing returns shows that there's only so much that you can give yeah. to one thing, and and eventually, you know, you're yeah, you're doing well, but you're actually detri- you're actually being detrimental to your health and your and your development. So it's not about picking one number and saying you should only go five times a week. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that the person, the kid, the player. Is the one that's um, that's fueling it. So if they're like, "I want to go play again," "I want to go play again," let them play. Yeah. Um, but the over the overstructuring of kids sometimes is, is, you know, and I'm not the first person to say this. Everyone says this, but the overstructuring sometimes can be um, the worst thing that we as North Americans have done mm-hmm. for our, our our children, our kids, our, our players, our future players. And mm-hmm. it's not the same in every other country. Uh, and, and you're from a different country, and you, you know that, you know, having an Italian background and, and being there all the time, you know, there's not the kid that's doing hockey, soccer, basketball, baseball, violin, lacrosse, tennis, they might do soccer, and they might play a different sport. Yeah. Um, but our kids are like, you know, I look at my Google calendar, and it's like, sometimes packed. I feel Mm -hmm. like these kids already have Google calendars when they're eight years old. And it's like, how can I schedule this, 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 and this? And it's like, parents just need to say, allow your kids to be the fuel um, to their own development. You can push them in the right direction. After a game, after a practice, the most important thing you can ask your your son or daughter is, how did you think it went?
1: Yeah.
0: Did you have fun? Did you enjoy it? 100%. Yeah. And, And
2: you know what? They'll open up. They'll say, well, what did you think, mom or dad, about... I should have, I should have shot there. And then as you, as a parent, then you have that segue to say, well, I thought you could have shot, but you know, whatever decision you made is the decision you made and you yeah. from there." But so many parents get in the car the way home and why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Yeah. You know? And then sometimes there's that, that mentality to blame the coach.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And at the end of the day, yeah, some coaches necessarily aren't necessarily doing a good job, but the majority are there to help those kids have fun and yeah. enjoy and learn.
0: Yeah. You know what? We could spend probably three hours talking about this topic, I feel. Um, I think that, and I don't have kids, we don't have kids, but I think we've been through that path and we see it every day, as you said. And I remember that my biggest challenge internally was the pressure. I was lucky because my parents were incredibly supportive. Nobody would ever yell at me in a bad way, thinking that they're encouraging me, but actually affecting me. Nobody ever did that in my family. It was just the pressure I created in myself, which I think resembles the pressure that some of the parents could build in their child, thinking that they're encouraging them or that they're pushing them up or that they're toughing them. can go sideways pretty easy. So, hey, I want to switch over now to your current present and kind of like your transition from being a soccer pro player to an entrepreneur, a leader, or to be honest, whatever you are right now, which by the way, uh, I think it's amazing. Because it's almost like i can't find one tag or a term to define you in which i love i love so you were a founder of urban soccer center which is, which was an indoor soccer training facility currently called toka you were also a founder of vancouver the vancouver futsal association as well so very quickly after your soccer career you uh, digged into the business world linked to the soccer world as well were you always entrepreneurial driven did you have that flame within you do you think soccer helped you get there tell me a little bit about that uh journey that you're in
2: yeah it's an interesting one um no the answer is no i wasn't an entrepreneurial person um, until probably my early to mid 20s um and it's interesting, how you say, you can't put a tag on me. I, I also think that's the way I feel about myself, but I also think it's a good thing and a bad thing. I, I do think that it's a good thing. And I think similar to you, i i'm i'm I don't want to say I'm scared to just go into one thing, but I, I want to make sure that if I am going into that one thing, that is exactly what I want to mm. do. Um, and sometimes I struggle with letting go of. The fact that I enjoy multiple things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, as an entrepreneur, you know, Alex that we mentioned before, and myself were playing in Germany at the time. Um, and during the winter pause, they would play futsal uh, and they would play indoor tournaments. Um, and I remember coming back and saying, let's host a tournament. Or maybe Alex mentioned it and it was like, okay, well, what's the point? Um, and we, so we we started Vancouver Futsal and we, decided that we're going to run a tournament and it was a men's tournament and I think we had 12 teams in it. So, you know, you're looking at a revenue of only say three grand Mm -hmm. um, plus all your costs and all the energy that it did to do Mm -hmm. it. And then we said, let's start a league. So we started a league and that's kind of how it grew.
0: And and there was no uh, futsal league at the time in Vancouver, right?
2: No, that was the thing. Yeah. I mean, indoor soccer was a thing at Burnaby Lakes Eight Rinks Complex, which is a hockey oh. rink with with turf, um, which is it is what it is. But it's not the same as futsal, as we know, both from a development perspective and from a, a gameplay perspective. So we started that and then, you know, you look forward three or four years, we got into the youth side of it um, and. You know, I, I think the last tournament that we had, we had around 100 and 130, 140 Amazing. teams, wow. our event. And, you know, since then, we, you know, both myself and Alex have taken a little bit of a backseat mm-hmm. because we've got so much going on mm-hmm. doing that. And obviously with the, the 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 merger from Urban Soccer Center into mm-hmm. Toka, um and just our own careers in general, we've kind of taken a step back of the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. side, which makes me always think, OK, well, what can I now do? to continue to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always been in the soccer world and that's something that I'm aware of and I want to maybe address and and look into doing something else that might be outside of that. It's just finding that time. But you know, it's just finding something that you think is, you believe in and there's a niche Mm -hmm. and and you can build. And
0: and I want to ask you Mike, when you started all these endeavors, was money the first thing that came to mind?
2: no um the first thing that came to mind was to be honest the futsal is something that at the time we were pro players we wanted to play we wanted something to do amazing um the the money thing wasn't like i said like it wasn't big you had 12 teams at 250 bucks a pop the next year i think it was 16 teams and and maybe it got as high as 24. you know money is a is a factor Mm -hmm. because um it's always a it's always a a point when you're when you're being an entrepreneur, but we haven't been entrepreneurs in a money driven industry, and that, that's why it's always been focused on soccer is because we actually believe in it.
0: Of course, and the reason why I ask you that is because I think a lot of people, including myself, have fallen into the trap of thinking money first. Obviously, money is important if you want to run a business or have a a project, because you got to make sure, number one, it's sustainable, like it's profitable, otherwise it can't function. And number two, obviously, you want to try to get some type of value from it as well. But I've noticed that in great business leaders, when you listen to conversations and podcasts of CEOs all around the world, like the CEOs of Spotify, the CEOs of Airbnb, um, of Google, etc they always, the least thing they mention is money. The thing they talk about the most is the value that they're providing people. So when you literally say, we just want it to play, you are literally saying what the customers are saying. We want to play. So so from a again, from an entrepreneurial point of view, how can you identify, number one, what you like and what you're passionate about? And number two, how can you frame it in your mind in a way that, yes, of course, money is important, but you're still prioritizing the value that you provide?
2: I think it's, it depends on the person because some people, what they actually really enjoy is trying to make money. Um, And so that might be their passion. Um, You know, you look at people that are always looking for the next play. They're always, and it it could be something so boring. Like I'm gonna go and manufacture cardboard and I'm gonna get a contract that supplies all the pizza chains in my city with mm-hmm. cardboard. Like for me, that's extremely boring, but for some people might say this is a great opportunity. Let's mm-hmm. build it. Let's pass it on to somebody and let's let it run. And then the next opportunity might be uh printing flags and saying one year before the World Cup, we're gonna ramp up our business. It's gonna be seasonal or it's gonna be cyclical and they're gonna manufacture a bunch make a bunch of money and walk mm-hmm. away from it. And then maybe four years pick it up down the road. You know, some people's passion is that trying to to, to to make money and find ways to make yeah. money. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think um, you have to, at least, you know, from as ignorant as I could be with this, you have to enjoy yeah. what you're doing. That's at least the, the main thing that I think. Some people say that coal miner scenario, they get in their car, they go to work, um, they make a bunch of money, but they might yeah. not be happy. You know not saying that people that have a lot of money aren't happy because I'm mm-hmm. sure they are, but I couldn't mm-hmm. personally imagine doing something that I don't like. And sometimes I, I struggle to answer the question. You know, when you come well, back in the day, at least when you used to fill out the forms when you would land in a yeah. different country and they would ask your occupation, Yeah. you know, you put soccer coach and people are like well, you're a soccer coach for a living. Like, How do
0: you do that? How do you survive?
2: You know, it's sometimes people look at you and go, well, wh- what do you do? And I, I remember my wife, Saying me, well, why do you keep telling people that you're just in the sports business? Why don't you just tell them that you're a coach or a technical develop uh, director or leader or entrepreneur? And I goes, I, I, not that I'm embarrassed by it, but it's like it's tough to put a finger yeah. on it, um, you know. And it's like you watch all those American TV shows, and it's like the high school football coach is just—it's different in, in in our world, in our in our profession in, in soccer. You know, you know, I'm working for a professional mm-hmm. club and a, and a local club. There's a future mm-hmm. in that game like the professionalization of coaching is is uh it's only here and it's going to get to here but it's it's an interesting thing when people go well wait a second you can make a living coaching or you can make a living doing something Mm -hmm. in soccer yeah you can it's not for everybody it's not easy and it's also um you know I I have friends that are in finance or in Mm -hmm. accounting and they're like oh your life's so easy I go listen you think it's easy it's not I'm spending sometimes up to 100 hours Mm -hmm. a week
0: And you have to be hundred percent in it. There's no way you can just fast track it or systemize it. It's a every situation is unique. But it's interesting what you're saying because, and I know this has happened to both of us. We've both had we've talked in weeks that we've just been completely swamped. And at the moment that we're talking, we're like, ah, man, I'm tired. I'm stressed. It's too much. Whatever. So we're kind of like struggling. But as soon as we get on the field. And the ball starts rolling. It's almost like a, a synergy, you know, like the energy you're putting in comes back to you from the kids, from the players, from from whatever going on, which I think re- pretty much resembles to what you're saying, which is we're passionate about this. And and if you're not passionate, I think you wouldn't be able to do it as number one at a higher standard than anybody else, and number two in a sustainable way for years and years and years at a top level. So what I wanna ask you now is how do you manage, now that you're mentioning that there's weeks that you work hundred hours, how do you manage to multitask efficiently? You coach for the Ycaps U23 team, which I'm, I'm, that's more than a full-time job for sure. Constantly traveling, analyzing players, strategizing, planning, etc. You are the technical director of North Vancouver Football Club, which is the largest, one of the largest youth soccer clubs in BC, okay, more than 3,000 players. And you're the one that literally runs every single program. You plan every single program. You have different consultancy uh, roles or gigs with other companies as well, plus your own personal investments, plus your life, plus your dogs, plus your wife, plus whatever baggage that you have. Like,
2: how do you do it? Yeah, it's it, it, for me, uh, and everyone's different. For me, it takes planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, if I, you know if I, if I talk about my Google calendar. If I look at my Google calendar, um, I know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I also know when it's time to turn off. And I know we've had this conversation before. Something that I've only learned in the past couple of years, maybe even more so since mm-hmm. COVID, um, is is making sure that there's non negotiable time for exercise, for rest, for family time, for. Um, all of that and and it's really really difficult especially when there's so many things going on there's always there's always um i'm always i've I've been guilty of saying oh i I see an hour in my calendar i'm going to go schedule that Mm um or i'm going to go schedule like more on top of it or i'm going to try and be in two places at once and i think that that's a trap that you fall into Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not easy to do multiple things Mm -hmm. at once so you know Going, going back to um, trying to give proper attention mm-hmm. to specific things without diminishing what you do with that company or with that organization is difficult. Um, Can you say that one more time? It's, it's difficult. So for example, it's difficult to give 100% to something in the moment. So like... Trying to trying to trying to loop back a little bit. It's easy to give like fifty percent to five different things. It's hard to give hundred percent to five different things. So it's important that you you're looking ahead and you're planning. It's it's important that you're looking ahead and you're saying, okay, well, this is when I can spend this time and be focused on it. And for me, like I I need to have timers on my my phone. So you know, like you said, I'm I'm coaching with the U twenty three s, the Vancouver Whitecaps, which It's been a little bit less recently because of COVID, not a lot of Mm -hmm. travel, league play, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that my time is 7.30 in the morning to 8.30 in the morning to make sure that I'm prepped for the day Mm -hmm. for that. And then I switch across into from 8.30 till I leave at 11.30. I'm fully focused on the North Van role before I go on field for the Whitecaps. Mm -hmm or any other thing and, and you know that I'm usually back at 3.30 and then I'm either back on the field for North Northman in the evening or I'm working but I know that if I've scheduled between 10.30 and 11 for a workout how strict are you with these timelines planning is important but there's there's always going to be things that come up there's always going to be things that you can't predict and it doesn't mean that I stick to it and if someone calls me you know for example if, if if Steve calls me or someone like that calls me and and needs to talk about something and I've got something in my calendar that, you know, ends up becoming sacrifice, like uh, my, my, my working, my master's program or whatever that is, then you fluctuate and you adjust. You got to be flexible because I think at the end of the time, end of the day, you have to be flexible. Planning is important, but life is unpredictable. Work is unpredictable. Sports is unpredictable. Always gonna be something that comes up and, It's not like you're working or it's not like I'm working in an office where I'm selling insurance and I know I'm at my desk and I got a client coming in and I got a meeting with the staff. Like it's it's all over the shop. You know, anything could happen. Um, You know, a, a coach might ask me to analyze a player or give them their opinion on a player or something's come up or, you know, a parent calls me or a staff member calls me or someone gets sick or whatever it is. There's always something that's going to come up, but for me, in terms of planning, and not everyone works this way, but if I don't have okay, I know what I'm gonna to do today, I struggle, and sometimes even putting in one o'clock to three o'clock chill time, like I'm the person that will do that. I'll put that in there instead of just leaving it blank. If I don't with sam the office that I'm in right now is twenty feet from thirty feet from my couch or my TV or where my dogs are right now, there's always something to do. There's always emails. There's always planning. So if I don't say I'm going to non-negotiable go and chill, I'll just walk back in the office and end up working. And that's something that I'm working on trying to get better. But when you have a home office, it's tough. I think it's tough to, to step away from it.
0: It's very interesting what you're saying. I lived for three years in the dorms of a university and my room was my bed and my desk. And I think those were the three most productive years in my life. I'm actually trying to get to that level again because I literally had nothing to do other than it was either sleeping or watching Netflix, which I'm not a fan of, or doing something. So it's the same as you're saying. Now, if you were to put in a percentage, um, how much percentage do you give to work, friendships, or social life? Active lifestyle, sports, etc. How would you divide it, and do you think it's the right division? Where would you want to get? Where would you want to get? It's
2: a tough question. Um, in terms of an actual percentage, uh, I don't necessarily think every day is the same, but I do know that if I don't exercise every day,
1: my brain doesn't work. Um, my body doesn't feel good my mind doesn't I feel stressed so
2: that's one thing that I always do so for example today already I've done a 45 minutes of exercise and it was important that I did that Uh, time with the dogs and my wife is important it doesn't always happen Uh, but I try to make time for that Um, and obviously with COVID you know seeing friends is kind of not yeah, it's also not really what we can what we can do. Um, and I'm not necessarily like my wife will have a group of friends and they will all get on Zoom and they'll I am just I don't do that. Like if I'm I, I don't I know, I'll do that sometimes. But really, I'm not like calling my buddies. Hey, let's let's all get on Zoom and talk like, you know, it, we don't do it. Um, but be- before that, I would say for COVID, I would say, you know, try to get out and, and do something at least. Or once or twice a week i know when i was able to you know alex and myself or my other friends would go and um we'd do some work and then we would we'd play tennis or we we'd play squash which i don't like but um i know you like squash uh tennis or squash or golf or something like that but i also find the winter is more difficult the winter is more difficult because not just because of the weather it just for me it's that it's the the darkness you know in Vancouver obviously you know for people that aren't from Vancouver you know right now the sun is rising just after 8am and it's, and it's setting just after 4 which is much better than if you live in Scandinavia or up in, in the north but if you live in Central America or you live somewhere near the equator you know you're you're consistently getting the same thing every single um, day in terms of sunset and sun, sunrise so for us in the summer great sun's up at 5am and it stays up till 10 right but now it's more difficult because I'm like it's tougher to get up it's tougher to stay awake it's tougher to do things that you want to do which sometimes give you a bit of rest um but in terms of percentage back to your original question there's i'm still working on it man like it, it it's it's I'm, I'm trying to not work more than eight hours sometimes it might be eight hours right away but sometimes i get up at seven in the morning and i'm working and then i get to three thirty and i realize i still have to go on the field till nine o'clock and i'm like Doing the math, I'm thinking that's like 14 hours in a row, and some days are going to be like that. And I think, not to squash the whole wellness um, movement, because I think wellness is an extremely important part, and I fully believe in it. Sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with people that don't get that wellness needs to be sometimes a product of also achieving things and also working hard. You know. Um, I think wellness is important, but for people that go oh i don't want to ever go outside of my comfort zone I don't think that that actually helps you in life. I think someone in my my master's course recently posted something that stress plus rest equals growth, and I think sometimes people forget that, and the more the younger generation is forgetting that in my opinion they're they're thinking, well i don't ever want to go out of my comfort zone, and I don't ever want to have to push harder than I feel comfortable doing. And maybe it's more people around your age, they're not necessarily being challenged all the time with um, having to go outside of the comfort zone. And that's kind of a catch 22 or or a double sided sword, because I look at some of the players that I coach, and they're up at 7am, they're going to school for two hours, they're training for three hours, and then they're going home and doing homework. And that's not easy. That's almost too structured and too difficult. But if you go back to generation of my parents and my dad's and my mom, you know, in their 60s. Or even people that, you know, are older in their 80s, and 90s, they went through way more difficult things than we went through. You know, you look at I saw a picture the other day of us, you know, people complaining about not being able to see their families at Christmas. And they show a picture of soldiers in the trenches on Christmas Day in 1914. And you go, that's a 20 year old kid, 18 year old kid, living in a trench. Fighting for his or her life um, in mud, in minus degrees, you know, feel for with other family. And not that that's a perfect analogy of what we're talking about, but I think sometimes wellness, quote unquote, needs to be sometimes deserved. It feels better when it's deserved. If you have a really hard day or you worked hard and you feel I've accomplished X, 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 or or X, Y, and Z, hey, I've earned that wellness. Whereas I think some people think it's, um, it, it it is a right but it's also like sometimes like it it, it creeps over top of progress in my opinion
0: listen man i th- i think we think the same way exactly the same way exactly the same way and um i know the time is limited we could talk about this for 3 hours but i definitely agree with you i think that the younger generations my age included are just it's a, it's a slippery slope it starts with Be comfortable. Don't put yourself out there if you're too uncomfortable. Then it ends up being a way of life, of living up into careers, relationships, challenges. And just like you said, I don't think, I really don't think that anything, and I might be oversimplifying, but I don't think that anything meaningful, extremely meaningful in life comes without suffering or struggle. Otherwise, I really don't think it will be that meaningful. If you see the World Cup, if you see the World Cup of soccer, we're talking about three years trying to qualify, playing against the best players in the world, okay? Different processes, uh, seasons of the year, stadiums, the height, the fans screaming at you, as you said, just to get there. And then once you get there and you win it, I think that if there was a World Cup every six months or every year, it wouldn't be the World Cup. It wouldn't have that value. It's the struggle and the suffering and the difficulty that makes the World Cup so valuable. I feel. So it's a good example to what you're saying. Mike, I want to ask you one more question, okay? So what would you say to your 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 30-year-old self? And you're 33 right now. So it's a question with, I don't know, three answers. Or maybe the same. And I, I, I structure it in that way because I know that we're going to have young kids, young players listening to us. I know there's going to be a group of young people as well, around my age in, the, in their twenties, listening to you. And I know there's going to be people in their thirties or even older as well, listening to this. And you're definitely a role model. You're a fantastic person. Everybody respects you. You have a fantastic work ethic. You're someone that I think people look up to. So I want to make sure that that answer tries to like cover everyone that's listening, you know?
2: For my 10-year-old self and my 20-year-old self, um, probably more so for my 20-year-old self would be, would be more confident. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat a confident person. I am now a confident person. But I think uh, I, ha- I have and I do still sometimes have a tendency to um, undervalue what I can bring to the table, um, whether it's in sports or whether it's not in sports. And I think I've gotten better at that recently over the past six or seven years. But I think that would be one thing that I would say to my 20 year old self. So my 10 year old self, it's tough because I generally look back and I say between 10 and 20, I had a pretty good run. Like it was, it was not, that there was things that I needed to get better at. I think, um, you know, from 10 to 20 it was almost like this. It was like, you know, doing well in school, doing well in sports, Um, Good family around me.
0: So, what made you do so well? So, what made you do so well then? What do you think made you do so well?
2: Uh, You know, sacrifices come with it for sure. Don't get me wrong. Um, I had a friend in my inner inner circle who was a hockey player who ended up playing for the San Jose Sharks. Um, And I had a bunch of friends that were not in sports at all. And um, they got to experience a lot more between 15 and 20. Let's say thirteen and actually let's just reword that. Let's say thirteen and eighteen. So if say let's in high school, they experience more from a social perspective. Whereas me and this other friend, we had sacrifices. Like it was like I remember my mom, uh, you know, and my mom and dad helped me so much during this, they, they would pick me up from school at three o'clock and I lived in Langley at the time. And during rush hour take to get from Langley to Burnaby would take about an hour. So it was like get home from get home from school. My mom would have made me food and then I would Drive straight to Burnaby, train, come home, do homework, do all those things. On the weekends, you know, you weren't out with your friends, you were doing things. And this is like people are probably looking like rolling their eyes thinking these aren't real sacrifices. But when you are at those age ages, it, it, it's it can go one way or the other. You could say I'm going to go party Friday night and not play well on Saturday or I'm going to decide to stay home instead of moving to a different country when you're 17 or. I'm going to take my spring break and relax rather than hiring a personal coach or going and trying to uh, trial with a club. And, and again, like, again, it's not there was no hardship there. So I don't want people to feel sorry for me. But there certainly are there's a tipping point where you go one way or the other. So, I, you know, those are the things that I was willing to do. And I think it was around the influences, too, um, that I had around me. You know, when you have people that are helping. You solidify what you're doing by showing that they're getting success also like seeing some of my friends make the provincial team national team professional um and seeing what they did to help me um you could have easily if i could have easily fallen into the wrong group of people and, and made the different decisions um, looking back at my i think looking at my 30 year old self which is not too long ago um you know recently there's something that i've been reading I've been reading a book and, and it mentioned something called the Janus effect. You know, the Janus effect. So I guess I might be getting this wrong, but a Roman God. Um, I think it was like the God of transitions or passages or something. Um, and he had two faces. So he was looking into the past and looking to the future. And I think, and I think you probably know this, but humans are the only species far as I know I could be wrong don't tell me I'm a scientist but the only species that can plan ahead in the future so they're the ones that think about their their future what they're going to do tomorrow what they're going to do tonight what they're going to do in five years from now and they work towards those things whereas if you're looking at an animal they're just like oh what's what's happening now I'm sleeping okay I'm eating I'm playing whatever and this is Janus effect is basically making sure that you're looking in the past and the future at the same time just this, like this two-faced God did. I think sometimes people are overly one side or the other. Some people are only thinking about the future, but yet they're not taking into account what happened in the past that helped them get there and the lessons that they've learned. And then some people are always looking at the past and it might be, you know, I, not to call it my dad, but, oh, this is how it worked back in the day. Okay, you're only looking in the past, you're not looking at the future. And so I think you need to have sight into both sides. And that's that's kind of what I'm. If I would say to my thirty-year-old self, is I'd read that three years ago. Not that things would be different, change. But I think it gives you a good perspective to say, how have I achieved things? What's gone right? What's gone wrong in the past? Where? What have I learned? And then planning. Okay, well, where do I want to be in so many years, or how do I want to get there? Um, and that's for me. It was an interesting one reading about that, the Janus effect. Um, so for me, it would be like looking. Both ways. That would be my advice to my thirty-year-old self.
0: Amazing, amazing. Look in both ways. That's a that's a great way to to give perspective to people. Hundred percent, Mike. Listen, I want to thank you for for being in in the show and for sharing your truth with us. And I also want to thank you publicly here to, uh, with all our our listeners for for the great leader, the great boss that you are, and for all the opportunities that you've given me and and many as well. In, in, in soccer and in life, to be honest, I told a story in the last in the first episode of the show in which you, you you were part of it, which was that in my probably one of the worst times that I had in Canada, I was depressed, anxious, about to leave, failing, I met you at Willem Griffin at Delbrook, the soccer field over there, uh, because I was working out at the gym, I didn't feel well, I went up to the lobby and I saw the field through the windows, and it was the so- the summer camp back then. So I remember exactly how I went to you. I introduced myself and then you asked me for my resume and literally a week after I was already with NVFC. And from then on, my life completely changed positively. And I was just going up and up and up and up. And you were the one that kind of like gave me that opportunity um, to maybe to be here, man, where I am today. So thank you so much again. Is there anything else you would like to, to share?
2: No, I'll just say, you know, I don't want to take any credit for your success. I think, um, you know, you, you're the motivated uh, growth mindset type person that's going to continue to progress. Um, just like anybody, I'm the same as you, you know, um, and, and I'm not, uh, quote unquote, a super successful person, depending on what context you're looking at it. Um, some people might say I am, some people might say I'm not, it just depends. and And I think I also um, I'm doing the same thing you're doing with other people. You know, I'm I'm surrounding myself with, you know, the coaches that I would get to work with uh, on a regular basis in the past couple of years have helped me so much. You know, I'm 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 lucky enough to be with um, one of the most experienced and and, and um, well-known most one of the top ten cap players for Canada of all time. Um, you know, in the Hall of Fame. You know, coached in the MLS, national team, professional. All that I, I get to learn from him every day. I'm also under um, other people that are are helping me. So certain people will give you opportunities. Certain people will trust you. But at the end of the day, people control their own destiny. Um, And I know that's easy for me to say because, you know, I'm in a a world where I haven't had to go through struggle. And some people might say, well, hey, Mike, you're a, you know, a, a male, white male from Vancouver, Canada. You know, you already have a head a head start, and um, and and I think there is truth to that. And I don't want to put myself in other people's shoes, but at the end of the day, um, going back to me saying I don't want to take any credit for for where you're at, I think it's important to acknowledge that everybody controls their own destiny, and certain people will help them will help them along the way because they're going to believe in them and give them an opportunity. But at the end of the day, the only person that can control their success is, is, is the individual. And I say it to the players all the time. People talk, talk, talk. And stealing a quote from Nick, who I coach with, show me. Right? It's show me. Like you can talk all you want about I want to be the best player in Canada. I want to be the, the next pro. I want to be the next Alfonso Davies. Or I'm really good at passing. Or I'm really good. Show me. You got to show me. And um, sometimes people aren't willing to do the work. Uh, and sometimes people aren't necessarily willing to do the work to get them to the point where they can do the things that they say they can do. Um, so for, for me, growth mindset, something that I've really picked up over the past three or four years, You know, everything is an opportunity to learn. I don't care if you're Carlo Ancelotti, Pep Guardiola, Elon Musk, at all times, you're always learning from everybody. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that can't be somebody that is far below you in the traditional hierarchy of the world anyways that's a bit of a rant there in a spiel but i uh i've enjoyed being on the the podcast here it's a, it's been it's been a pleasure so
0: grazie for being on the podcast my friend and uh i'll see you on the field